Our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for today. We worship you for your grace. We thank you for your love upon our lives. We say may you be highly exalted in Jesus' name. Father, as we go into your word briefly, we ask that you come and dwell among us, even as you've been throughout this service. Speak to us by your grace and by your power. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we have our seats? I'd like to welcome you to the first Power Sunday of 2022. And today we're looking at a topic that I believe we'll find very useful throughout the year. And it's titled, Being Useful to the Master. Amen. Being Useful to the Master. I want us to open our Bibles briefly to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, from verse 19 to 21. 2 Timothy 2, 19 to 21. It says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having the seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Amen. So you see, the thing is, the very idea of use is quite offensive to humanity's natural state. And what I mean by that is, man would rather be needed than be used. Does that make sense? We would rather be needed than simply be useful to someone. So for example, if you are told in your office or in your family or in your school or in the social circle that they need you, hmm? it does something for your ego. It does something for your sense of personal pride rather than them simply telling you that you are useful. Someone tells you you are useful. There's some value to it, yes, but ultimately, there's an undertone there that every man hears that he's replaceable, right? Essentially, if you say you are useful, somehow the person is technically trying to say that they are not exactly depending on you. Yes, you have value. And that's why the idea of being useful, even the word being useful to the master might be offensive to some people. Because man would rather be needed. And in this passage, Paul speaks about different vessels. He talks about vessels of gold, vessels of silver, vessels of wood, vessels of earth. Some to honor, some to dishonor. And he talks about different vessels. But no matter what the vessel is, no matter what man sees himself to be before God, no matter what man might 
that he is. Ultimately, man is still being used. So, some might say, oh, I want to be gold before God. Some might say, oh, I want to be silver before God. Oh, I don't want to be wood. And I'm just using this analogy as an example. No matter what you think you are, no matter what heights that God decides to take you, no matter the glamour of your ministry, or no matter the hidden nature of your ministry, because there are people that are doing things for God in deep and dark places in this world. There are people that are right now, as we are speaking, they are not in the city. They are in villages. They are in places where there's no electricity, sacrificing their life and their time for the work of the gospel and for the kingdom of God. And to man, they might not be gold, to man being the key word, because there might not be any glamour in what they are doing. But irrespective of our perspective, whether you are mature enough to recognize that those people are doing the work of the kingdom, whether you have the enlightenment to know that, that is the assignment, actually. It's not for us to get comfortable in our churches. No matter how you look at it as a human being, the truth is that man there can still not afford to feel like he is needed by God. Needed in the sense of irreplaceability. Needed in the sense of, oh, what I'm doing is so precious that if I'm not doing it, nobody else can do it. No man can't afford to think like that. Because whether it's me that is standing before you or somebody that is out there, what we are essentially is we are being used by the master. Christ does not need us. Amen. Can you say Christ does not need me? I'm the one that needs him. So essentially, the reason why Paul, in his letter to Timothy, puts the, puts the condition and puts the action that needs to be taken on the head of Timothy is because he knows that Christ doesn't need Timothy. It's Timothy that needs him. So if Timothy wants to be of value to Christ, his master, he has to purge himself of all these things and be a vessel unto honor, right? So I've tackled use for a bit. I want to tackle the concept of master. You see, the thing is that another idea that we don't like because of our own perception of the word master is we don't like the idea of Christ or somebody or anybody being our master. Because when you call someone or something your master, what you're saying indirectly is that you're a servant to that thing or that person. And humanity doesn't like that. We like our independence. We like our freedom. But independence and freedom does not exist in the actual sense. Because all of humanity is a slave to something whether we realize it or not. In Romans chapter 6, 
I read from 17. And this is also Paul speaking. Romans 6. It says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanliness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things? Whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Is death. But now, being made free from sin, become servants to God, ye have the, your fruits unto holiness and the end everlasting life. What is Paul saying here? Everybody is a slave to something. So the idea of freedom is actually a myth. The freedom that the devil promises or paints, the picture of freedom that the devil has succeeded in painting to the world, the way the devil has succeeded in making Christianity look like a form of slavery, a form of lack of expression of one's self, as something that restricts humanity rather than something that frees humanity is all a scam. Because the truth is, nobody is truly free in that sense. Man has to serve something. The difference, though, is that, number one, with Christ, he's our master unto righteousness so that we can have eternal life. And he's a master who gave his life for his servants. Because in John 10, Jesus said that, I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life. The primary quality that he gave of the good shepherd, what makes him the good shepherd, and him being the shepherd represents him being the master because the shepherd leads the sheep. And the one quality that he gave that qualifies him to be the good shepherd is that he lays down his life for the sheep. You see, an earthly master can pay coins, can pay money to purchase a slave, can get the slave out of trouble when the slave gets into trouble even in those days. But what that master would never do is die for that slave. If the issue gets to a point where the slave's life is forfeit, the master will think to himself, well, I can, get, I can always get a new slave, right? And that's what makes Jesus the loving and caring master. And the third reason why him being our master is different from any other master that we have or we will have had in the devil when we're in this world, when we're still walking as, as Paul said yes, here rather, after our flesh, is this. 
that relationship is not the only relationship that we have with Jesus. You see, our relationship with Jesus has multiple dimensions. He's our master, but he's also our friend. He's our master, but he's also our what? Our brother. He's our master, but he's also our father because he is one with his father. Masters don't have that kind of relationship with their servants. It's usually one-dimensional. And believe me when I say that those who are slaves to sin, Satan is not their brother. <laughs> He's not their friend. He's their adversary. He's actively against the entirety of the human race. And he wants to get as many as possible unto himself because he knows his own end. So when we speak about being useful to the master, we have to take away every human preconception that we have about the word use and about the word master because they are both good things. They are not bad. They are extremely good. If only man can get over his own ego and pride and the Christian cannot afford to have any pride, irrespective of what God has used you to do and what he will use you to do and he will do for you and with you this year, like we've said, his, our year of what, of his revelation. No matter what happens, no matter how brilliant or great it is, never forget that you're still a creature and God is still your creator. That never changes. Christ still made you. And it is with that humility that we should approach him always. It's only from that perspective that what we are teaching this morning will sink. Amen. So before I go into prayers, and before I do what God has led me to do this past Sunday, I'm not going to dwell on negatives. What I mean by negatives is I'm not going to simply tell you what not to do. Because that's all we've been talking about so far, right? What not to do. How we shouldn't see it. So the question now is how should we see it? What should we do? And I found this answer in one of the most unlikely places in scripture. And I want us to open our Bibles to the book of John chapter 12. And I want us to read from verse 1 to 11. John 12, 1 to 11. I read. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then they took, then took Mary a pound of ointment, of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of what? Of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This is said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag, and there what was put therein. 
Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying. Has she kept this? For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there and became not for Jesus' sake only, but, they might, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Because, by, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Amen. I want to paint the picture for you. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They're siblings, right? Three of them. And this chapter of John is essentially, this, this is Jesus' last public meal. This is also his last public outing. This is the last time that people are going to see him outside in the sun with everybody else. Because after this chapter, we move to him and his disciples alone up until he got dead and crucified. So this is like the end. <laughs> and we get to the end of his interaction with the world in this manner. After this point, Jesus is not going to interact with the world the same way he has interacted with them for three and a half years. And the end is not something that looks like very glamorous. It's a simple meeting. He's in a house with three of his closest friends who were not counted among the twelve, but were disciples all the same who he had spent enough time with because even from their words, you would know that they know the truth. When Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, when he got to Martha and Jesus said, do you believe he will rise again? Martha said, I believe that he would rise again at the resurrection day, which means that Jesus has spent enough time with them that they already know about the resurrection that we know about, that we're waiting for when he comes back. They were already aware. He had them. He has fellowshiped with them. He had spent time with them. And this was the last time he was going to be with them. And these three people were doing things that represent three major areas of our lives that God would have to use for us to be useful to him. And the first person we're going to look at is Martha. And the Bible says that Martha was what? She served Jesus. She was the one that was in charge of making the meal. This is not the only time Martha made a meal. The other example we have of Martha making a meal was an example of correction for Martha. It wasn't because making a meal was a bad thing. It was because at that point she was doing it at the wrong time. But you see, the thing about Bible stories sometimes is we take one incident of somebody's life and we use it to blacklist that character in the Bible. And a lot of times, because Martha was cooking while Mary was listening to Jesus and Jesus corrected her, people have looked at Martha as the bad sister <laughs> and Mary as the good. Is that true or is that a lie? It's true. <laughs> it's the same way we think about Thomas and the first thing we remember is he's a doubter <laughs> it's human nature because they will do it to you too 
people won't forget your mistake, particularly on these days of Twitter. They will make sure they remind you, even if you, you have forgotten. But this shouldn't be our impression of because at this point in time, Martha was not doing something bad. In fact, Martha was doing exactly what she was supposed to be doing. And Martha was preparing the meal that she would serve to the people and Jesus. What does this represent in our life? This represents our praise. Amen. Because it's not in the flesh anymore. We can't give him food to eat anymore physically. The only thing we can offer to him is our what? Our praise. And believe me when I say that one of the most hurtful things that the devil can do to your life is if he can shut your mouth from praising God. If he can take away praise from your lips. Whether through trials or tribulations or tests or some struggles or something happened, amen. And because you're going through a storm or because things don't seem to be going well temporarily or you have a challenge or the other, or maybe it's even distraction, you forget to praise. That praising God is not an active part of your life. It's a problem. You can't say you're useful to him that way. It's so important that he said it himself that if you don't praise him, I'll raise what stones to praise me. Praise is such an active part of us being what? Useful to God. This year, nothing should steal your praise. Amen. Nothing must be allowed to steal your praise. Can we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews 13, fifteen. it says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Do not let the devil shut your mouth this year. Do not let him take away praise from your quiet time, from your interaction with him. It's a simple thing, but to some people it's a secret because they've not really discovered the power of praising God. It's one of the things that you can do and time will pass and you won't know. You know, so, sometimes, a lot of times, even for some people, prayers are not like that. They are very aware of time, the time of passage when prayers are concerned. 
Like when you've prayed for 30 minutes, you might know. It depends on the intensity of the prayer, but many, many times you know when you've prayed for 30 minutes, particularly if it's not like regular practice. You know when you've exceeded your normal capacity. You never notice this with praise. It doesn't happen. Because once you start and your heart is in it, you can just keep going on. Because it's God's food, God will keep strengthening you. Because he's feasting on what? On the fruit on your lips. And any believer who does not praise God (laughs) is not being useful to his God. It might seem like such a trivial thing, like what does he do for God? We don't know. In fact, don't even praise him basically because you know, we you and that's why I used this. I used this verse rather than using some other verses which are true, but might color our impression of praise. Because there are Christians that speak about praise solely for what it can get for us. So there are teachings about praise, about how you enter his gifts with thanksgiving and his course with praise. And you know, and they teach and they talk about how, oh yes, when you enter his course with praise. And they use earthly king as an example, which these are not bad teachings. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that with these examples, when you enter the courts, then when you're done, you can now what make your request. This is not dependent on the requests that you have to make. Even if there was no request to be made, praise God, because it is your sacrifice unto Him. And it's one of the ways that you are useful to him. It doesn't have to be dependent on what he does for you or what he would do for you. It simply is. Amen. So that's what Martha and her actions in this verse represented. And let's move to Lazarus. In some way, Lazarus had just one job, and his job was to show up. But because of the events of his life, because his life had become such a primary example of the power of God through Jesus, because Lazarus's testimony was arguably the most profound testimony of Jesus' ministry because the man was dead for four days. He was not the only person that Jesus raised from the dead, but he was dead for four days. He was popular. He was in the city of Bethany. He was close to Jerusalem, so the Jews came from Jerusalem. It was a public event that was so big and so dramatic that today, that street has been named after Lazarus, where they lived. It was such a historical moment, both in Jewish history and the ministry of Jesus. So Lazarus had one job. To what? To show up and to converse with the people. His job was, life was proof of the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
his life was proof of the power of Jesus Christ. And this proof was so strong that the Jews added him to the list of people they wanted to kill. So they wanted to kill Jesus. But because of Lazarus, they said, okay, we have to kill Lazarus too. Because because of him, people are believing in what? In Jesus. And Lazarus represents our lives being a testimony of the presence and the power of Christ. And this is one of the ways that we are useful to him. That our lives be what? A testimony. Presence and the power of Jesus Christ. But you see, there's no testimony without a test. Lazarus didn't have this effect simply because, oh, he was Jesus' friend. His presence had this effect because something had happened. He was dead. That was the test. That was the event that turned him from someone that was just an ordinary guy to someone who people would look at and remember Jesus. And here's the thing. It would be difficult, actually completely impossible, but I'm using the word difficult in a diplomatic sense, for you to say that you don't want any challenges this year. It's actually not good for you. Amen. Please answer me with joy. <laughs> it's actually not good for you, irrespective of how you see it. It would be difficult for you to say you don't want challenges this year. Oh God, my covenant with you this year is there will be no challenges. God is just looking at you like, have you read my word? Do you know everybody that you read about in this word? Are you trying to tell me that they didn't face something? It will be difficult. It will be extremely difficult, actually impossible, for you to simply say, oh, I don't want any challenges this year. You have to have them. But the reason why you have to have them is so that God can bring out what he wants to bring out in your life. It's not for you to suffer. It's not for you to be dejected. It's not for you simply to be lost. There might be a temporary period where people might mock you and say you don't know what you're doing. People might say, oh yes, you're carrying the Jesus on your head and there's a shortcut solution to this problem and you're not taking it and it's clear for everybody to see because it makes what? It makes sense. And you're just refusing to do what makes sense. But when he brings out what he wants to bring out from that situation, you would find that what? Your life would become a testimony of what? Of Jesus. And man cannot be useful to God if our lives are not a testimony of Jesus. It's important. It's extremely vital. 
So what we should be praying for is an abundance of his grace to bear the challenges that are coming. Because they are coming. So that when, we, when they come, we'll have the resilience to go through that period and come out victorious. And we can come out and say, Jesus did it. Because that statement, Jesus did it, whether in thought, action, or words, would make someone curious at least. Amen. So the Bible says that these people came there. Jesus was not even really the star of this particular show. Because it says they came there, yes, yeah, Jesus is there. But they were like, no. We heard that this guy was dead for four days and now he's alive. Let us just go. I want to go and see him. And why this is important is because as believers, we cannot afford to hide our relationship with Jesus. Amen. And that's why this Lazarus part is very important. He had to show up then. He obviously on that table, he had to converse. There are pivotal moments where we need to confess Christ. And if we miss those moments in our lives, it will be very, very sad. So imagine after this dinner, and Martha had made the meal and everything, and Lazarus just said, I want to eat in my room. Like I feel like eating inside today. He's still alive, yes. But people will come and they won't believe he's alive because they want to see him. And sometimes what this represents is times in our lives where clearly something has happened and it was Jesus. And you are in a situation where you need to express the fact that it's Jesus. And you try to explain it away with sense. Maybe because you are afraid that the person you are speaking to might not understand if you simply say it's Jesus. You must have been, we've been, have been there before. Who has not been there before? Who has been there before? You've all been there. We have to live there this year is what I'm saying. If you're still there. You've been there on some level where something supernatural happens in your life. But somebody is asking you about it and you, well, the first thought that comes to your mind is, man, this one does not even believe in anything. If I go and say it's Jesus now, <laughs> But it really was Jesus. At that point, if you start speaking English, what you're doing is the equivalent of Lazarus eating his food in the room. Because at that point in time, you're not making yourself seen with Jesus. You're not identifying with the person that raised you up from the dead. So Lazarus had to show up he had to converse with the people. His life was a testimony. Amen. And let's move to the third person on this table. And that's the person we speak about the most, actually. But I started with the first two because I didn't want to give her all the spotlight. Because she's the one that gets the most spotlight from this story. And her name is what? Mary. And the Bible says that Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard. And it's very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped it with her hair. And Jesus, at the end, when Judas had said what he was going to say, 
Jesus said, leave her alone. She's doing this against my burial. She's anointing me for my burial. What Mary's actions signify is our sacrifice of love for the assignments that God has given unto us. Because Mary paid a sacrifice of love for the assignments that Jesus had for humanity. And Jesus told us the significance of the sacrifice that she made. It wasn't just that she bought something expensive, which is sacrificing her resources. It was that she wiped his feet with her hair. Hair represents glory. The hair of a woman is her glory. That is a very deep act of humility and love. Laying every single thing that makes you who you are. Every single thing that might be good about you. Every success. Every achievement. Every single thing that men even ascribe to you as you. And laying every single thing of such humbly at the feet of Jesus for the sake of what he wants to achieve through you. And that covers both our resources, our time, our very selves. And that's what she did here. And if, she, if what she did was irrelevant, Jesus would not have had to speak. Because Jesus wasn't lying. Jesus was telling them, essentially, because thank God for Judas. And that's a very rare thing to say. <laughs> but thank God for Judas. Because it was Judas' comment that prompted the response. And the truth is, even if Judas is the only one that said it, and he was speaking from his own selfish perspective. There is no doubt in my heart that other people on that table also thought the same thing. They might not have been thinking from the angle of money, but they might have looked at her like, what is she doing? What's the point of this? Judas looked at the cost of the oil. He didn't look at the entire picture. His was just, look at this expensive oil this woman is wasting, which is fine. But I'm grateful to him for speaking. The same way I'm usually grateful to Peter in the whole of the Gospels for speaking. Because if Peter didn't say some things, we wouldn't have some answers. He had to say some nonsense for, we to get, for us to get some truth into our lives. And Jesus made it known not just to Judas, but to everybody there, that what this woman just did is significant. It means something. Because she is preparing me for my burial. You might not see it. You might not understand it. But I do. And in your life, there has to be a lot of, you might not see it, you might not understand it, but God does. Especially in your relationship with people. There has to be a lot of sacrifice for the sake of the master's work that you will pay that man will not understand. 
Man may not necessarily get it. But God does. Because he's the one that is watching you do it. And it's to him that you are doing it. Your pastor may not understand it. He doesn't have to get everything. That's not his job. His job is to guide you if it is God's will. He doesn't have to have all the answers. Your spiritual leaders don't have to have all the answers. When it comes to issues like this, personal sacrifice. Because Mary and Martha and Lazarus were siblings. This thing was not their business. They didn't do it together. She did it alone. It was from her heart to her master. And her master recognized what she did. And this year, for every single one of us, there has to be something that is from our heart directly to Christ. Connected to the assignments that he has given. That only him recognizes and only him might be the one that understands. But it's our sacrifice unto him. Amen. And these three things are the positives. These are the things that we have to do. We have to have lips that are full of praise. Our lives have to testify of God's goodness. Of the presence of Jesus in our lives. And his power. And for that to happen, it means we have to pass through the tests and be victorious. And number three, we have to sacrifice for him in love. Amen. Amen.